Blood, bullets, high-octane thrills, chills, and lots and lots of boobs. The Australian film industry for a brief time created a burgeoning industry of exploitation films as an offshoot of its new serious cinematic movement known as the Australian New Wave. This week, in the first ever joint choice, Austin and I will be discussing the documentary Not Quite Hollywood, a film that is a tribute to Ozploitation. 10, 9, 8, 7, 6, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Hey, welcome to I Dig This Movie. I'm Keir Seward, an independent filmmaker and photographer, as well as a guy who kind of now wants to start a podcast purely just dedicated to discussing Australian movies. You could totally do it, man. You wouldn't ever run out of space. There's a billion of these yeah. fucking things, and nobody's seen them, so it would also be informative for people. I'm Austin Hayden-Smith, philosopher, actor, writer, producer, etc., 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 and I don't really know shit about Australian cinema, so I'm excited for this. We're, we're back after a sort of sl- uh, uh, an impromptu hiatus. Yes. Uh, yes. Yes. Um, but, um, yeah, it was, uh, it was absolutely fair enough. Austin was off... Um, Dealing with some family stuff, you know, in a nice way. Not I was going to say, that, that sounds bad, sound dealing with family stuff. Yeah. I was officiating my sister's wedding, man. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no. It wasn't, it was, so that's, it wasn't uh, dealing. He was that's Reverend Austin to you now. <laughs> but, um, but yeah, I'm also going to be putting out a bonus episode soon, which will include... Because, obviously, uh, I went to see a lot of movies in the time period that we weren't uh, doing the podcast, so... Yeah, it would be a lot to squeeze into this episode, so I'm going to do three movies I saw this week, and uh, the rest I'm going to, I've already recorded a bonus episode, which we will be putting out as well with all the other reviews. Is your favorite one of the past three weeks one you're going to talk about today, or is it in the bonus episode? It's in the bonus episode. Real quick, just give me uh, a little bit of a cock tease. Um, Favorite one would probably be Black Klansman. No shit. Okay. Yes. Um, I have something I want to confess to you. Have Did you not like Black Klansman? No, no, no. This is actually totally unrelated. Um, okay, cool. But you know how you got really excited over the past couple of months about The Greatest Showman? And I was kind of like, eh, whatever. Yeah. So there is this theory that says that when you fly on an airplane, you're more aware of your imminent traumatic death. And so you're more emotionally vulnerable than in other states. Yeah. And I can corroborate this anecdotally because every time I'm on an airplane, I always has, I always have intense movie viewing experiences. I think I've told you about this before. Like, yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Inside Out ruined me. Uh, uh, like crazy fucking destroyed me. Um, well, I watched The Greatest Showman from Sydney to L.A. And I was a wreck, bro. I was a wreck. Well, I, got, I mean, it got me. It got me all up in the feels because it was the greatest show. That's why <laughs> it got me all up in the feels, man. So I just had to say mea culpa, and uh, I know that it's like a. There's some elements that are problematic and shit like that. I get it, but hey, man, those musical numbers, the music is well written, and Hugh Jackman is just a fucking god amongst other gods. I mean, you know, you know what, too. It's you gotta you gotta give the man props too, because he did that the same year he did Logan. I mean, like that's yeah, that's acting right there. That's that is, versatility. That a, that's versatility, motherfucker. Yeah. Okay. So this week in review, we are going to be talking about Climax, Mile Twenty Two, 
and a simple favor. In trending topics, we are going to get into how goddamn awesome Burt Reynolds is because, unfortunately, we had to... We didn't get a chance to talk about Burt Reynolds when he died, so I'm just saying, fuck it, we're going to talk about him now. And now, and then finally, we will be talking about the documentary on Australian exploitation, not quite Hollywood. So, Austin, um, the review system for this week is going to be very much on theme. It's going to be, it's going to be how Australian is the movie. So the, the movie's quality will be gauged in how okay. Australian it is. Not, now, obviously, none of these movies are very Australian in reality. It is just purely as a review system. It will make sense when I, when I get to it. But um, anyway, so, uh, so I'm going to start off with... Something that I think you would be mildly intrigued by, which is the new Gaspar Noé film, Climax. Mm-hmm. And um, so, Austin, what's what's your history with Gaspar Noé? Oh, I'm a big fan of Gaspar Noé. Um, so the first film that I saw of his was Enter the Void, and I thought it was fucking kind of crazy and amazing and awesome, and I've seen it a few times since then. And then I went back and I saw uh, Irreversible, uh, Irreversible, and I loved it. Uh, I think it's brutal, but fucking amazing, and it, it explores some really interesting themes. And then I saw Love 3D, and, uh, you know, it's a good film to have a wank to, I guess. Um, <laughs> I don't know what else to say about it. It's not a good movie, but it's no, interesting. Love is, love is genuinely not a good movie, and it's no. funny how often films that have real sex in them are just really boring. Yeah, well, remember, we tried to kind of do something that was sort of circumventing that tendency with our intimate film that we did in deep right is that we were yes. like look like why don't we do an intimate portrayal of a couple but then also i mean we started off saying it would be like a kind of a terrence malick piss take and then it turned into something yeah. serious um but you know that's kind of what we did with our film and, and and it's because i think that people just are like oh here's this gimmick that i've got let's show that the yeah. sex is real you know like von trier does that with some of his films although antichrist has real sex in it and i think antichrist is fucking amazing yeah, but I think although it's also, porn star body doubles. Yeah, no, but I think there's. I think that's also part of the difference there too, though, is that it's just these insert shots. So I think it's kind of like it doesn't, you know, no, no pun intended. Um, <laughs> so I didn't I'm not that. really sure, but I'm not. I'm not really sure. Like, but anyway, I, well, like I mean, nine we're songs. Because climax like nine does not have stuff. real sex. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Nine songs but is yeah, a boring I mean, ass movie. Listen, I I think that Gaspar Noé is a very interesting filmmaker. I did. Yeah. I, I saw bits of his. What's it called? Like detracted. Uh, he, there was that series of short films where people. Oh like, yeah. Um, I forgot what it's called too. Districted. Where they all distracted. That's it. Um, where also um the director of kids did a short in it as well. And you yeah, know, yeah. No, I saw um, it. Yeah. Interesting. I think I think Enter the Void is amazing, and I think Irreversible is amazing, and then I think the rest of the films that I've seen of his are kind of, you know, they're there. They're there. But I will see Climax because I think he's so intriguing. Well, I think this is probably his most approachable film. Weirdly, oh. uh, so the the plot of Climax is the trailer looks that you have this crazy. The trailer is crazy. The trailer trailer sells the film well. It is it is okay. it is basically what the trailer is, but you know, the trailer is obviously a little bit more censored than the real film. But <laughs> um 
But basically, the plot of Climax is essentially you have this dance troupe who they're having like a, a sort of closing night party, and uh, somebody spikes the punch with, um, I assume, bath salts or something like that, and uh, basically everybody goes fucking insane. Like it's and, and mm. that's that's literally the plot. The plot is <laughs> dance troupe gets spiked, punch spiked, everyone goes nuts, and. You know, and then film proceeds from there. But I mean, it it's interesting because in many ways it's employing a lot of what Gaspar Noé has been doing over the last twenty years of his career, which is the sort of the deconstruction of cinema in terms of like a, a lot of what we uh, think of as the the sort of the basic cinematic language elements. Like, so for instance, like the ty- the actual like main ty- the, the it starts off with the end credits. You know, much in the same way that say things like um, Irreversible has. You know, it starts with um, it. Has has his sort of famous like um, juddering big letters that come up, you know, to say the actors' names with all the different fonts, and then oh, yeah. you know, and that actually, and then it it's it, it basically it, it's almost like the first forty five minutes is is a lead up to the actual to the actual movie, and then he brings in like the credits at the forty five minute mark as a way of like kind of being like this is when the movie starts, which okay. is again it's like his kind of weird way of trying to deconstruct what we traditionally think of as like cinematic language right um which i'm cool it's with. Also, i love that shit yeah and basically the film is like being in the midst of some kind of crazed drug-fueled nightmare where it just slowly escalates over time and just you follow various characters and the whole way that it works is essentially that every single time you, is that you'll be following one character then it'll change over to another and the whole thing looks as if it's one long take and you're just following people down halls while just crazy shit is reacting to them and then suddenly you'll have like this point where you and it, it also it, it's really interesting because it kind of builds tension in this way where because you're following this one character, you'll hear noises or you're, you're very much perceiving what hap- what's happening in the world. And then suddenly out of nowhere, somebody will get like lit on fire or like you'll suddenly just see people like convulsing or crazy shits happening. And it's just it's it's it sort of goes for the jugular in this sort of crazed way. But at the same time, like I said, it's it's weirdly his most accessible film and so it stars um sofia butala who's kind of obviously known for playing the girl with uh, the blades on her legs on kingsman and oh, she's yeah. been in various things like the mummy and atomic blonde and she's i would say this is the first time that i've ever seen her give a performance is what i would say rather like, than just being the hot I've chick always, she's yeah, she's been the hot chick. She's been yeah. the sort of hot kind of exotic chick generally and then this time she's like actually like properly having to act and like and part of it i think it makes sense because she is a dad she her background is in dancing so it's a very very physical performance and so it doesn't surprise me that this is kind of definitely the best thing i've seen her do because it's something that relies so much on her physicality and there's just a sequence where she just has to really just freak out and just it's so in and because of course like all of the all of the people who, when they're going through this crazy trip, when they're freaking out, because they're dancers, so much of it is so physical and, and there's so much movement involved in it. Mm. And then, you know, Gaspar Noe is obviously doing weird things where he's <laughs> sort of like uh, tilting the camera around in like 360 degree spins and, you Kinda know. Kind of like Uwe Boll. Oh, just basically all sorts of which. Yeah, and and there's all sorts of uh, there's there's all sorts of weird shit going on in the sense that I, I don't think you know how like pretty much everyone in a Gaspar Noe film is generally a dickhead. Yeah. Like there's there's he, he, he there's, there's not a world populated by nice people. <laughs> kind of like everyone in this film is still kind of a dickhead. So yeah, um, but I'd say it is a really 
visceral and intense experience. And I, I find this hard to... It's, it's weird because I've been talking to people for the last couple of days about it. And people kind of go, oh, that sounds really cool. And I kind of have to go, okay, but let, let me put it this way. Okay. As long as you're okay with a film that's not meant to entertain you, but more meant to be like an experience, like it's supposed to elicit a kind of visceral reaction in you, then you're, you're, you'll be able to go along with it. But don't go thinking, oh, I'm going to watch some crazy dance movie. So you're telling me that this film is perfect for me? Yes. No, I think, I think you'd get on with it. In fact, actually, I think the only thing that you would think about it was that um, because it's not like, say, Enter the Void where he's pondering all sorts of, like, pretentious, you know, Tibetan Book of the Dead kind of stuff, <laughs> you know. It's like this is, this is just kind of really crazy, trippy shit. Okay. Um, uh, and it's, it's really funny because when this played at Cannes, he had kind of said he was so used to the fact that critics hated him that he was completely not ready for everyone, for like the, the, the rapturous reception that it got. That's so funny. He was just like... He was just he was just ready for everyone to hate it, and then suddenly everyone loved it, and it just confused him. <laughs> right on. So how Australian yeah, is this like, film? So this film is Paul Hogan drinking a VB on top of Uluru while humming Waltzing Matilda. That's pretty fucking Australian, man. That's very that's very fucking Australian. Okay. So you could you can interpret that as what you want about what I thought of this film. Okay. 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 So. Next, we're going to the complete opposite side of the spectrum, and we are talking about Marky Mark in <laughs> Mile 22. Is he ever going to live down that poor nickname? No, he's always going to be Marky Mark. Okay. You know, it's you don't, you, you don't be part of a group called the Funky Bunch and think that you're going to get out of being called Marky Mark. Okay. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, you know, I mean, fair play to him. You know, people, people... We all have things that we did in our youth that we regret, but, uh, you know, yeah. un unfortunately, you know, his happened to be uh, appearing in music videos and uh, singing terrible music. And boxing. And, well, also also uh, doing a lot of underwear commercials. A lot of underwear commercials, yeah. God bless Mark Wahlberg. Yeah. Anyway, um, anyway, so Mark Wahlberg is the head of a kind of... Okay, well, here's actually the thing. The plot of this is really weirdly overly complicated, considering really the basic concept of this film should be the dude from the raid has some information on a hard drive. This hard drive is going to basically that, that the American government needs to stop like terrorist thing. Uh, they they he says he'll only the hard drive is going to basically destroy itself in a certain time period. He says he'll only unlock the hard drive if they if he gets asylum in America so they have to so Mark Wahlberg and his team have to take him the 22 miles to the plane that's waiting for him before the hard drive corrupts but meanwhile also there's all of these uh, people who want to kill him um, on the way so they have to get him to the plane without him being killed okay that really should be the plot of the film but weirdly that is like half the movie it has this really long startup where th that involves them sort of like infiltrating some house with sort of Russian 
spies or terrorists or something at the beginning of it where it's an operation that all goes wrong. Mark Wahlberg is like this guy who's like kind of like a savant, but you know, he has like this rubber band on his wrist that he snaps constantly as this way of trying to keep his brain from moving too fast. And I mean, and also like, let's, let's be clear. I, I like Mark Wahlberg, but he shouldn't play smart people because he doesn't do it well. Um, and then, and and it's got this super patronizing thing where anytime somebody asks him a question, he's always the smartest person in the room and basically tells explains to them why they're stupid. Um, Lauren Cohen has some kind of plot line where she's uh, married to where she's divorced from Peter Berg, the director, um, who's like uh, who's, who's has a brief cameo in it. And so and she's got a troubled relationship with her little daughter who she wants to see, but it can't go home for her birthday. And then also like this team is like some kind of like weird black ops thing. That's that that's like that, that John Malkovich like operates from a remote place. And it's just it's so overly complicated and confusing. And it's like that weird because I went to see it with Bradley and there was literally a point where like 20 minutes in Bradley just went to the bathroom and he and comes come back, back and I was like, I'm not even going to try. <laughs> to tell you what happened in this two minutes because I don't really understand what happened in this two minutes and then when we came out we were both kind of like well that was kind of shit because like and the thing is like because we were just sitting there going like did you understand what was going on in like most of that movie and it's like no because literally I went because I thought okay this is a movie they have to get guy from the raid from point A to point B and there's a bunch of people who are going to try and stop them from getting to point A to point B but I think what they're trying to do is they're trying to set up a franchise for this I think they think that this Mark Wahlberg character is like the savant genius guy because the whole credits is just setting up him as a character is such a, a fascinating character that they're going to make a franchise out of this out of this concept and so it, it weirdly feels like half the movie is trying to set this concept of Mark Wahlberg and this black ops team up while not actually delivering a film that you want to see about them in the first place. Is this like so, is this like when Chris Hemsworth did the Black Hat shit? I didn't actually see Black Hat. It's I, I couldn't as a Michael Mann fan, I couldn't bring myself to do but it. But like um, but like you know how like but, like Chris Hemsworth I love him. I think he's actually a really fantastic actor, but it's just really hard when you're that good looking and that built to think of him as being a computer nerd. Is it kinda like that kind of dissonance? I just I don't even think that. I just think there's something about Mark Wahlberg where I think actually I think Mark Wahlberg plays Ernest very well. And I actually think I mean, I think it's one of the reasons why probably his best performance is Boogie Nights, because he plays that kind of earnest, slightly dim guy really, really well. And I just don't think he reads as very smart. And I don't know if it's partially the baggage that you put in that Mark Wahlberg brings because you have this awareness of him from the rest of his work. But he just doesn't seem like that guy. It just it, it, it seems false all the way through it. But I haven't actually gotten to the main crux of the problem, which is this film is edited to shit. Like, it's insane how over-edited this film is. It's like nothing rests. It's exhausting to watch. And the, especially, too, you have the dude from The Raid, who's like this incredible martial arts, you know, uh, martial artist. And it's every action scene with him is so edited to ribbons that you can't tell what the fuck is going on. And the weird thing is with this is that I, this is not a charge that I level against Peter Berg because generally, because Peter Berg, he has this kind of chaotic handheld style, but generally I'd say it's, orchestrated in such a way that you definitely are able to tell what's going on. Like, I really like Deepwater Horizon, you know, which came out last year. 
And I say that's a film where you can understand the geography and what's going on most of the time. And perhaps it's because there's so much special effects involved that they have to plan it out more. But this just felt like gibberish. Really? Like I had no idea what was going on through most of the film. And even just 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 conversation scenes were cut so fast that you just I, I could not get a handle on what was going on. And it also just meant timing was off on everything. And I suppose this film is this film's 90 minutes, so I don't know, maybe they cut it down to try and make it faster, but it just, it just, everything, nothing settles, nothing lands. Mm. It's just exhausting to watch, and especially considering you don't know what's, you don't know most of the time what the fuck is going on um, in terms of, like, this the, the plot. It makes it all the more exhausting to sit through. And it was definitely one of those ones that by the last 30 minutes I was kind of like, okay, so this film is going... I feel like this film's going to end soon. So if I can just, like, hold on for the next 30 minutes, then it'll be over. And I can go away and never have to watch this movie again. Mm, that so, makes sense. Uh, so the the rating for this film, I would say, is that it is basically a palmy bastard. A p- what's that? Well, you, you don't. You never heard what a. You, you're in Australia. You've never heard what a palm is. Uh uh-uh. uh. Palm is slang for English people. Uh huh. So if you say, I mean, maybe it's because I was around. I was around backpackers, mm. you know, but they refer to English people as the palms, which uh, actually is short for um, prisoners of Her Majesty. Um, so ironically, it's actually what they called the prisoners who were first settled Australia. Mm. Um, but it's um, but it's again, it's slang for for uh, for English people. So it's a palmy bastard. OK, a palmy bastard. I'd rather have very Paul Hogan drinking some beer. Uh, yeah. But yeah. OK, I'm with you. All right. What's next? Well, you know, again. It's not very Australian. <laughs> so, finally, we are going to talk about A Simple Favor, which is a weird kind of, I, not U-turn, but maybe L-turn for Paul Feig, who is the director of Bridesmaids, Spy, and the Ghostbusters reboot. Um, and he's making what kind of, from the trailers, looked like a kind of like a 90s erotic thriller type thing. Um, you have Anna Kendrick as a... Um, single mom in the suburbs who uh, ends up befriending another mom played by Blake Lively. And Blake Lively, Anna Kendrick's kind of like your classic kind of like over-enthusiastic mom who volunteers for everything. Um, And then Blake Lively is this kind of cool alternative mom who kind of like swears and drinks martinis and doesn't give a fuck. So they're kind of like two very different types of women but anyway, um, so they become friends, and Blake Lively then one day calls her up and asks her if she can, if Anna Kendrick can pick up her son from school, at which point she proceeds to never show up uh, again, and the and uh, and goes missing, and then so the whole mystery then becomes around what happened to Blake Lively's character, and as obviously Anna Kendrick starts looking into it more, she finds out that there is more to this person than she thought, and that she is not necessarily who she thought, and mystery and intrigue and blah 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 anyway yeah so that's it's it's it's, it's you 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 get a, a a feel for what i'm talking about right, right i gotcha but anyway um but anyway um i i suppose like the the real paul feig element of it is that rather than this being like in the kind of 90s way where like it would be lots of like you know steamy looks and kind of intense conversations and moody smoky lighting it's it's this is actually like kind of styled more 
with a more comedic element to it. So a lot of like the conversation scenes feel more like something out of Bridesmaids where it's kind of very chatty and sarcastic and jokey, Um, which kind of provides an interesting tone for the film because the thing with a lot of these kind of erotic thrillers in the 90s is they are inherently ridiculous. I mean, if you look at like kind of like the gold standard of those films, I mean, in the sense that it's probably one of the most famous ones, like Basic Instinct. Basic Instinct is a fucking ridiculous movie. And it is like it's almost hilarious in the way that they t- like the dialogue is unintentionally hilarious. Right. In Basic Instinct. Um, so there's a kind of almost self-aware quality that this film is trying to bring to it, where it's inherently aware of some of the more absurdist elements of it. And how you go with that, I think, will kind of be a little bit how you feel about the film. And I mean, I think there's definitely a kind of feeling of this is a film that's somewhat taking away... I mean, obviously, the, the, despite the fact that it's it's directed by Paul Feig, it is certainly taking away some of the more male gazy elements to this film to, to these type of films it feels much more like it's interested in the the two women's internal lives more than talking about them as kind of like sexy seductress people and stuff like that and so it, it, it it's it's an interesting back and forth in terms of where you where you think this is going to go but i i think ultimately the thing that you would most compare this to is probably gone girl um and I think it's a comparison that doesn't do this movie a lot of favors because it doesn't have the style of Gone Girl and it's not as clever as Gone Girl. And so it very much feels like diet Gone Girl, if I'm being honest. Okay. And I think, and because the leads are too, are very charming, I feel like the first two thirds of it are really, I was really hooked into it. I was enjoying the mystery element of it. And I like cheesy 90s thrillers. (laughs) So I'm, I, this 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 was up my street in many ways. So I'm I'm really down for it. And then the third act is where it just kind of goes off the rails for me. It it gets almost. Here's the thing: it gets really silly. And I'm not necessarily against a film getting really silly, but I kind of want the film to actually commit to the silliness, whereas this film felt like it had to ironically undercut the silliness, and it meant that it it left it on a weird kind of a weird basis for me where then the sort of the climax just felt really kind of stupid. Um, and I, again, I liked it fine. I think it was just a little bit of a disappointment because for the first two thirds of this movie, I thought I was really into it. And then it just really didn't stick the landing for me. So what kind of, uh, Australia rank does it get if it doesn't stick the landing? I'm going to say it's an Australian beer commercial made by Americans. (laughs) Foster's Australian for beer. Machines are going to fail, and the system's going to fail. And then? And then what? Then survival. Who has the ability to survive? That's the game. Survive. And you can't wait for it to happen, can you? You can't wait for it. Well, the system's done all right by me. Oh, yeah. You got a nice job. Got a nice house. Nice wife. Nice kid. You make that sound rather shitty, Lewis. Why do you go on these trips with me, Ed? I like my life, Lewis. (laughs) 
Yeah, but why do you go on these trips with me? Austin, a couple weeks ago, obviously while you were in California, I don't know how much this affected you in any kind of a way, but uh, obviously uh, Burt Reynolds died. Yeah, I heard. Um, now, now to certain to a certain generation of people, Burt Reynolds was the biggest movie star in the world, and I think it's it's hard for people to really understand that back in the seventies. Burt Reynolds was, like, pretty much the biggest name in movies. Like, he was just huge. Um, but Burt Reynolds, I think, has always kind of occupied a kind of fascination for me in certain ways because Burt Reynolds was this kind of... He was almost like... He was kind of a blue-collar movie star, if you get what I mean. Like, the whole idea, the whole concept of him, he was a guy who was beloved in, like, the red states and the midwest he was kind of right. like he wasn't he he was kind of the opposite of kind of hollywood glitz and glamour in a lot of ways um you know and i and i think obviously burt reynolds made a lot of money he lived a very high life but i think he very much cared about the fact that he was really liked by people in the midwest and so i think there's something really fascinating about him as this guy who is this kind of kind of the 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 movie star for the average american um and i don't think we really have that anymore. I don't really know who you would think of as like the sort of the middle American movie, mostly because we don't really have movie stars anymore in the same way that we used to. But I just think there's something about the man that I find quite fascinating. But when I proposed this topic, you said, I don't know anything about Burt Reynolds. So I'm just curious, what, what do you actually know about Burt Reynolds? Just from when he was older and then pop cultural references about Burt Reynolds. So I know him from like Boogie Nights and shit. Um... But I, I don't know shit about Burt Reynolds from back in the day. Like, you talk about him being the biggest star in the world. Like, I know some of the movies he's in, and I've seen him, like Cannonball Run and uh, Smokey and the Bandit. But Best Little Whorehouse. But I don't, I mean, I don't really know. Oh, and I guess I, I saw Deliverance. Fuck, of course. I'm looking through his filmography right now. So, you know, so I know the films, but for some reason, I guess I never saw him as being a superstar like you're making him out to be. You know? Well, He's, he's an interesting guy. Okay, so so kind of like the way Burt Reynolds' career went. He was originally he was a football he was a football player, and then he sort of got into acting in a kind of sideways kind of way, um, and um, basically, and he was he was from Florida, and he was kind of this uh, you know, and so he, so he was, saw himself kind of as a southerner, and um, and basically he ended up uh, doing a lot of like sort of TV work. He was on, say, things like uh, Gunsmoke and, uh, you know, a lot of, like, those, those sort of, like, uh, Western shows and stuff like that. And he was kind of, like, masculine dude, so it made sense that he kind of popped up in a lot of those type of things. Um, but, actually, the way he genuinely became famous, and this is true, and the reason he got cast in Deliverance was because... He kind of became famous as this personality on The Tonight Show with Johnny Carson. Like, because Johnny Carson would just interview him, and he was, like, a, just an entertaining guy to watch on The Tonight Show. Like, people just liked having him around. And he actually would occasionally take over for Johnny Carson when Johnny Carson wanted, like, some time off. And he would host The Tonight Show. Um, which, again, like, most people don't realize that that's actually why Burt Reynolds initially kind of became famous. Um, and then, like, John Borman saw him on The Tonight Show and kind of was like, he's like, this guy's really charismatic. This guy's really kind of like, you know, he, this is what we need for this character in Deliverance. And that's how he got cast in Deliverance. Holy shit, I had no idea about that. Interesting. Um, and so do you, um, when was the last time you saw Deliverance? <sighs> Years ago. I don't know. Why? What you thinking? It's really, fa it's really, really fascinating. Okay, because Deliverance is a movie where 
it's probably maybe besides Boogie Nights is probably Burt Reynolds best performance. And the thing with it is that in the first half of the movie, Burt Reynolds owns that movie. And this is kind of what John Borman said to um, kind of said to John Voight and Burt Reynolds, who actually like they were they were like close friends pretty much for the rest of his life. Um, And um, he kind of said, like, okay, so Burt Burt Reynolds is going to own the first half of this movie. And then in the second half, it's going to become John Voight's movie. And you've got to let that happen. You've got to give up. You've got to give up the, the 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 center stage, the star status in the in in the second half because that's how the trajectory of the narrative needs to work, and that's it. And like that's kind of part of the whole point of Deliverance too is that Burt Reynolds at, at first seems like this kind of great masculine hunting type, and then kind of as the film goes and you see him kind of get taken down a peg, you know, he loses that kind of like. He, he you, you see him kind of get owned and lose that kind of like that, that, that sort of masculine energy. And it's one of the things that's really great about it because Burt Reynolds is able to be sort of vulnerable and allow himself to be sort of uh, uh, to, 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 to be taken to, to be taken away from that kind of like that Burt Reynolds masculine sort of like like star. And I and it's one of those things where Burt Reynolds came very, very close, I think, to being having a potential trajectory as a very serious actor. But here's the interesting thing is around the time that the Oscar nominations were sort of being decided, he posed for a nude centerfold in Cosmopolitan. Oh, Um, I remember hearing about that. Yeah, yeah. There's a famous shot of him on like a on like a bearskin rug with like in front of a fireplace where he's just sort of sitting there naked. Um, I think his his dick's not out, but you you can't see his dick. Oh, that's right. The bearskin rug. That's right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And he basically said it was the biggest regret of his career because he felt like it cost him the Oscar nomination because people kind of went from saying, oh, like this guy, he's like a serious actor to suddenly, oh, this guy doesn't take himself very seriously because he's now like posing nude in Cosmopolitan. Um, so and that's kind of like and that's kind of like weirdly where his career suddenly like diverts into him being like kind of like doing these kind of like more dude comedy slash action movies so that's where he then starts doing like uh he does these two films called uh white lightning and gator which are of the 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 character gator mccluskey i think it is where he's like a moonshine boot uh, moon moonshine runner he does things like um the longest yard which is a film that i love um, where, you know, he's kind of playing uh, a, 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 an ex-NFL player who's now in, um, or ex-football player, I can't remember if he played for the, in the NFL, who gets uh, sent to a prison in um, Georgia. Is that Adam Sandler's like, character in the together. remake? Yeah, the remake loses a lot of the kind of, like, 70s anti-authoritarian kind of real... It loses a lot of the grit of the original one. And so, because the original one's made by Robert Aldridge, who made, like, The Dirty Dozen and Whatever Happened to Baby Jane. It's got it's got a, a real necessary mean streak to it. Um, whereas, like, the Adam Sandler one's just goofy. You know, it loses a lot of, like, the real kind of, like... Um, uh, it, it loses a lot of the stakes and the grit of the original. And also, it's obnoxious because it's basically, in many ways, just a scene-for-scene remake of it, but loses the essence of it. Okay. So, yeah. But no, the, the Burt Reynolds one is great. Plus, you know, Burt Reynolds, Adam Sandler, who are you going to take more seriously as, like, uh, a disgraced football player? <laughs> I mean, I don't really... Yeah, yeah. Um, I, he was, he was Waterboy. 
Yeah, no, it's it's, <laughs> yeah, no. it's it's Burt Reynolds. It's the answer. The answer to that is Burt. Yeah, Reynolds. well, Burt Reynolds has um, a sort of like not an anger, but he has an intensity about him that I don't see in Adam Sandler. He that's one thing I think about him. I think of him as being a bit more stoic as a dude. Yeah, you know, he's kind of got that like but, that typical old school. I'm a man. I know you mentioned that earlier, but that's what it is. Like he's he's like a man's man, you know. But. He, He's also a dude, actually, who is very... I mean, because the funny thing is, if you ever bring up Burt Reynolds around my mom, the thing she'll always talk about is Burt Reynolds being in romantic comedies. You know, because he was a sort of really good romantic comedy lead. And that's not really a lot of what I've seen. I mean, um, you know, because I tend to think... If somebody says that, I tend to think of something like At Long Last Love, which is the sort of disastrous John Borman... Not John Borman, um, Peter Bogdanovich film where he uh, made all the actors live sing. Um, and uh, it, it Burt Reynolds was, didn't have the greatest singing voice. Um, but, yeah, I mean, he's... But he's, like... Um, but, I mean, through, like, most of the 70s, he kind of would make a lot of these kind of, like, sort of light action films where he was kind of like your quipping sort of anti-hero who oftentimes was driving a car somewhere. And, you know, and that kind of hits its peak point at uh, Smokey and the Bandit. Which people forget, Smokey and the Bandit was the second highest grossing film of the year it came out. And do you know what the top grossing film was? What? Star Wars. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, Smokey the Bandit, that's the kind of rarefied air it was in. It was a huge success, and the only thing that prevented it from being the top movie of that year was a giant film phenomenon. So, I mean, you know, I mean, he did, you know, I, he, and, and sort of like, so, I mean, as he got older, you know, I think he made, I mean, he himself has said he made a lot of bad choices. Like, um, he's famously turned down a bunch of roles that ended up getting people Oscar nominations. Like, I think he was one of the original choices for One Flew Over the Cuckoo Nest. Uh, he also definitely turned down uh, the Jack Nicholson role in um, Terms of Endearment, which Jack Nicholson ended up winning an Oscar for, and that really, you know, that was that he always said was one of his big regrets. Mm. And part of it was because ultimately he liked working with his friends. He worked with the same directors a lot. He always had his friends come in and make cameos. Um, and he liked, you know, he liked the money. You know, it was like he he was a guy who far more prioritized okay, we're going to go film in, like, this location. That's that's nice. I, I'd like to hang out there. And uh, we're, I'm, you're going to pay me this amount of money? That, sound, that sounds great. And I think, you know, it's something that is interesting because later in his life, obviously, this was something he regretted not taking himself more seriously as an actor. Um, and, and I think it's really typified, too, when you look at him in something like... Um, like Boogie Nights, because he's fantastic in Boogie Nights, and you kind of feel like this is more of what he should have been doing in his career. Right. But the the funny thing the funny thing with Boogie Nights too is that um, he hates Boogie he hated Boogie Nights. Why did he hate it? Um, well, I think it goes back a little bit to this kind of star status thing of how he saw himself as this guy who was the um, this sort of uh, movie star for the Midwest, for the Red States, for, you know, the more conservative America. And I think to a lot of people who he was, to a lot to a lot of his fans, he thought, like, it looked like he was doing porn, like he was making a porn film. Right. You know? <laughs> and, you know, they didn't get, I mean, they didn't get what it was. Plus, I think he sort of saw Paul Thomas Anderson as a bit of a young punk. Mm. And I, I've heard this before, is that Burt Reynolds directed a bunch of movies as well. Um, and he really didn't, 
he didn't he got to a point where he really didn't like young directors because he felt he knew more than them and also he didn't like the i mean interestingly enough one of the things i did here is one of the reasons he agreed to do the movie was because paul thomas anderson knew a lot about film and he sort of like and burt reynolds hated working with people who didn't know the history of film um, so it was like, so again, so it was like this thing where he kind of, because he, because Paul Thomas Anderson was this guy who talked the talk, he was like, okay, I'll agree to do this. Apparently he turned down the role several times. Um, and I think, but I, I think they clashed a lot on set and it was this weird thing where he got an Oscar nomination for Boogie Nights. And I think it was this thing that he had wanted his entire career to be sort of taken seriously by the Oscars, even though he pretended he didn't, he actually really did. Um, and then finally, you know, when he gets nominated is for a film that he's kind of embarrassed for and kind of feels <laughs> awkward talking about. <laughs> and so it's this weird, it's, it was this really weird thing where like, kind of like he should have been able to capitalize off of the success of Boogie Nights and become some kind of elder statesman of film, but he kind of just slipped back into an awful lot of just really poor decisions again. And I think that's just part of it. I just don't think he was ever the best at making career decisions. Mm. And, you know, I, I look at the, I look at the difference between say someone like a Kurt, what Kurt Russell is doing now and, a, and Bruce Willis. And this is, this is a, this is a problem with a lot of, you know, actors is that then you know, they get to a point where they don't know how to go into old age. Like I think someone like, Kurt Russell has really figured out what his position is now as an actor. He's figured out how to make a career out of where he's at in terms of his age and his and 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 his sort of his casting. Well, yeah, we talked about like that Bruce in Willis... relation to like Bruce Willis. Hmm. Exactly, and I think I think Burt Reynolds has a very similar problem, which is just that he I think he found it very hard to adapt to not being a movie star anymore. Mm. Hey, I got a question. And so, I mean, oh, go ahead. Know, his, yeah. Well, you know how, no, like, and I think, I think if you look at like, <laughs> sorry, man, go ahead. Yeah, no, no, you go, you go. Well, I was going to say like, so you know how on Saturday Night Live, Norm MacDonald did the Burt Reynolds impersonation? Yeah. Do you remember that? Like, where does that come from? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, is that ba- that's because ob- obviously they're doing caricatures, but they're intensified or hyperbolic caricatures. So is that based on certain stereotypes around Hollywood? Of Burt Reynolds? Oh, I think, I think Burt Reynolds is always a guy who's quite happy to be short and tell people exactly what he thought, and I think that's probably where that comes from. I think okay. it's certainly the. I mean, the thing is, Burt Reynolds. One of the things that was always very much a big part of his persona was that he was charming. He was a charming motherfucker, like, and that was kind of like, especially in the seventies, that was kind of his thing. Is he was the guy who could kind of swan in and charm, you know, charm the pants off anybody, but also kind of be a be a rough and tumble motherfucker as well. And I think part of it is the sort of rough edge of him as he became older, became far more prominent and the charm started to go down and he became much more of a crotchety, grouchy sort of sort of guy. Mm. And I think, you know, a lot of that came from resentments and frustrations to do with the industry. But I mean, I I, I think I mean, it, again, I find it it's really hard for people to understand it now, but he genuinely was absolutely massive in the 70s and to a certain part of the country Burt Reynolds was the movie star hmm yeah I mean that just escapes me you know I think of Burt I think I think I think of Burt Reynolds as being a bit of a joke in some ways actually like Mm. because I I think that is the sad thing I think that's kind of what he became later in his career yeah and and he was a reference he was a pop culture reference that people 
in the you know two thousands and and up until he died would reference him as being you know maybe a cop, a pop cultural icon sort of figure, but it was never like he was revered. It was kind of even if they talked about his masculinity or him being a man's man, it was always with a little bit of levity. Like they were poking fun well, I think at, he like, was also, it, 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 you know, I don't know. Kind of like when well, people poke fun at, like, Sean Connery, too. how Sean Connery, like, has said mm. that he would smack a woman. Like, kind of like that yeah. sort of thing is, I think, how I kind of view Burt Reynolds as in his masculinity. Well, I think that's the problem, too, is his masculinity kind of went out of vogue at a certain point, and he became, like, and it became far more of an old-fashioned-looking thing. So I think it, it, and I mean, there's films that kind of try and play on that a bit. Like, I think Boogie Nights plays on that a bit, and I think especially a film like Striptease, which is just a terrible movie, but it, it, it's kind of trying to play on the on, on his persona a bit. But, I mean, again, it's like my first experience of Burt Reynolds was when I was a kid, Watching and I got taken to a film called Cop and a Half, mm-hmm. where Burt Reynolds is this cop who's investigating some crime, and then like it's seen by a little kid. It's almost like if somebody tried to make a comedy out of Witness, but at le- and left out the Amish element of it. And so he has to. It's more like actually more. It's more like Turner and Hooch, but instead of a dog, it's kid. And so he he has to like look after this kid, and it's like oh. He's a grumpy, crotchety man, but he has to look after a child. You know, it's that sort of thing. And then, and I just remember kind of just being like, you know, my, I can't remember who took it to me to it. It might've been my dad, but my dad trying to explain to me like that crotchety old man, like he used to be like, like the, the, the pinnacle of masculinity, you know? And it's, it's a, uh. And, and, and just kind of being like, he just, I was just like, he just like seemed like some grumpy old fucker. And like in that point too, he was at that point where he was, you know, clearly like dying his hair, dying his beard, still trying to look, you know, younger and well, dying his mustache, but yeah, trying to look younger. And it just, you know, and it's just, it's one of those things where you just kind of like, he never figured out, I think how to quite age. And I never, he never figured out how to gracefully rejig his career outside of the way he outside of outside of his kind of glory days Mm. and you know and i think it's very sad that he never really liked boogie nights and even like i really like a film like mystery alaska which he sort of plays a supporting role in and again he's got great comic timings he's fun to watch and it's also like especially to once he gets to boogie nights that's where he's kind of settled into having white hair you know he's sort of grown a full beard at that point he's kind of like he looks very presentable he's not trying to do the uh, he's not trying to pretend he's still a young man anymore by that point and it's kind of like and i and i and i I just kind of wish that he'd managed to find a better way to he'd he'd found a better way to to sort of uh, to to age into cinema because i think he was he's a he's a really fascinating part of film history what's mystery alaska mystery alaska is a film uh, it was directed by Jay Roach, which stars uh, a pre-gladiator Russell Crowe, but it's basically where uh, there's this small town in Alaska who have uh, who do these weekend games where, like, the town has two teams that kind of play each other every weekend, and the town all shows up to see it. And the idea is, like, the town's, like, really far north. It's, like, a really remote Alaskan town. And then, so this guy who used to live there, um, he writes this article in Sports Illustrated and gets all this interest in, like, this, this kind of, this, this, this town with this kind of hockey tradition. And so they end up setting up this kind of uh, publicity game between the town and the New York Rangers. And so it's, like, oh, then, like, kind of like that blowout that happens afterwards. Yeah, I remember that. Yeah. 
and 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 Burt Reynolds plays the the judge of the town who ends up kind of coaching the team. Oh yeah, I remember that. Okay. So it's a, it's a charming movie. I like it. But yeah, okay, but I think we can we can wrap this up by saying that I really like Burt Reynolds. I have a feeling that at some point over the next couple of months I'm going to pick a Burt Reynolds film for us to watch so we can talk about uh, talk about it some more, but uh yeah. I, I I wanted to send out a tribute to Burt Reynolds. Tribute, rest in power, rest in peace, rest in your masculinity, rest in your nakedness on your bear, la- bear rug. Yes. Rolling speed, buzzer, clapboard, action. If you grew up watching Australian genre films, marauding packs of bullies. You heard my car. Roam the highway looking for people to fuck with. We were seeing things I've never seen again. Ah! Wouldn't mind seeing again, but I've never seen again. It was a highly profitable film. The budget was 200,000 until 5 million. Government agencies would actually stand at the bottom to stop these cans of film being seen overseas. Ah! Want to put a shrimp on the barbie? Smutty. Lesbianism has always left a nasty taste in my mouth. Nudity was no issue because everybody wanted to be nude. You couldn't have seen more than what you got. Oh, outrageous. Can you think of a more absurd premise than the Mr. Whippy Van being the instrument of evil? Nothing wrong with that. And they said, which part would you like to play? Judy, she's the only one who doesn't get killed while she's screwing. We actually had live ammunition fired at actors. They pronounced me dead. In America, we just call that insane. So this week, we Austin, this is the first time ever that Austin and I have just agreed on a film to watch rather than um, sort of pick one each. And I think it was because we sort of thought it would be an interesting primer considering that we're going to be watching a whole bunch of Australian films for... Uh, for the the upcoming Versus episode episodes. So Not Quite Hollywood was a documentary that came out actually quite a long time ago now. came out, I think, around 2000... I'm trying to remember. It came out around 2009, I think. It came out when I was in uni. Um, and basically the film details what is a under-known thing, which is that uh, around the early 70s to into, like, the early 80s, Australia kind of went through a, a cinematic boom because essentially the Australian government um, were essentially trying to artificially create an art scene. Like there was this notion that at the time that there was no real sort of, there was not a lot of art being made in Australia. So essentially the government set up all of these tax incentives to allow people to make things. And there's a, even a joke about it in uh, the film Barry McKenzie where they sort of are saying, oh, the government will give anybody, any any bastard, any money who says he can paint a picture or wants to make a movie or anything. And it was, it was kind of true. There was just a lot of incentives to try to get people to start making movies. And so on the one hand you had this kind of generation of great filmmakers uh who came out great films that came out of that the the top being peter weir who came out with uh picnic at hanging rock uh the last wave and then went on to do great things like witness and um the truman show mastering commander uh, master commander um but then you also had this other offshoot of that 
which was the exploitation market where people kind of realized that, hey, actually what we could do is we could just get all of these um, is, is that we can just make this sort of these these really sort of quick, cheap commercial films with lots of gore, nudity um, and just kind of like extreme elements that'll just get people into the cinema. And of course, this is uh, exploitation cinema is a, is, a, is a long and storied part of film history. Um, you know, it's it's, it's a, you know, essentially kind of like the, the Robert Cor- the, the Roger Corman brand of, of doing things, which is like make something cheap and extreme, which will get people in. You have a small you have a small margin then to make a large profit on something that just like that you can sell purely through the poster and the concept. Um, so, I mean, what you get out of this is you get a really interesting mix of these what's known as the the ochre comedies which are these kind of like body sex comedies you have these kind of like extreme horror movies with sort of like uh, like heavy gore and kind of crazy creatures or or slashers or and then you have uh what i i these these crazy action movies which i kind of love how tarantino describes because tarantino is one of the people who's interviewed in the documentary kind of describes as uh the nobody nobody shoots a car like an aussie because they have this fetishistic lens that just makes you want to jerk off (laughs) um And, he, and basically, he's sort of like he's like if you if you watched an Australian film at the time, you would just think that all Australia was just filled with these marauding bands of gangs just moving around the outback, just fucking with people. Um, and and so of course, like probably the most famous and most well respected film that kind of came out of this movement was uh, Mad Max, which is still to this day just like uh, visually incredible you know film to watch and and the the documentary goes a little bit into the making of that but it goes into discussing a lot of the key players of the time a lot of the key films of the time and you know also where this kind of settled into australian culture and how it sort of worked within the overall sort of film landscape it is funny that you mentioned that it like that tarantino's quote because i think that that like films like mad max road warrior um and then, of course, like Crocodile Dundee or whatnot. But I think that that was my introduction to the country of Australia for a very long time as a young boy. It was like endless well, desert Crocodile and Dundee's landscapes. Crocodile not really part of this movement. It's more like uh, – I mean in, in many ways the funny thing about Crocodile Dundee is it's almost a kind of a critique of the Ocker comedy in many ways. Mm. Um I mean, I'm probably giving Crocodile Dundee too much credit there, but it's it's you know it's it's much more self-aware. Well, because it was that's his character, right? That was one of Paul, that was yeah. Paul Hogan's characters. He was kind of mocking that sort of like Bogan type of yeah. dude, right? Yeah, it was it was because it was something that was kind of developed through television for many years before it was a film. You know, it's uh, it's kind of like if you know in this country when in in the UK when they make when they have you have like a famous TV character and then they say oh we're going to make a film of this but the thing is in America nobody knew that Crocodile Dundee was a pre-existing character so right. they were just like oh this is just a new film rather than it's a spin-off of a already pre-existing concept right right i mean it's like when Sasha Baron Cohen has a character or um like fucking oh who's the dude that used to do like little miss muffet sat on his tuffet what's his name yeah, that guy. Like that's a um, oh, Andrew um, Dice Clay. Um, Andrew Dice Clay. Like yeah, Dice yeah. is a character, but, but most people don't know that Dice yeah. is a character because Dice had been one of Andrew Dice characters' players. But the Dice Man is a character of Andrew Dice Clay's that he had worked on the comedy circuit forever. But then he just yeah. kind of got famous with that one character, and then that became the character. But it's essentially like 
somebody make it's it, basically Crocodile Dundee is like Wayne's World, where like people aren't aware of like the skits and Saturday beforehand. Night Live. So it's like. Yeah. Yeah, so it's like when Wayne's World went over to foreign countries, people weren't like, oh, it's those characters from Saturday Night Live. They were like, oh, this is a, a, a Wayne's World character. Right. But I, I want to get away from this, though, because Crocodile Dundee is not really part of this 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 movement. But it's but I'm, I'm, I'm curious. So because this was the sec because we actually watched this together, this documentary in Scotland like years ago yeah, and at your yeah, house because in you you were staying at my house. I was like, and I, I love this documentary. So I was kind of like, dude, we should watch this crazy documentary about, uh, uh, I think it was like, I think I brought up the concept of exploitation at one point, And then you kind of went like, uh, and you were like, Oh, what's that? And I was like, dude, we should watch this documentary about it. And then we literally sat down and watched this documentary. And it's, <laughs> it's really fun because it has so many clips from all these different movies. So you kind of get to see like the highlights and a lot of like the most insane bits of these famous Australian movies while, well, not famous, but kind of like underseen Australian movies and exploitation films. And, and you, you sort of, and, and it, while also getting all like the history of what was going on with these films at the time. And also just like a lot of stories about health and safety issues because they really did not give a shit about health and safety issues in the 70s yeah no i love that that it's kind of like uh, we didn't have permits we were just fucking driving down these dusty roads and we just kind of stuck a camera out there we had like real explosions <laughs> i mean i kind of I, I don't know i mean you know we've done a lot of guerrilla running gun type of filmmaking and and I kind of love that idea, but just doing it on a little bit of a bigger scale, you know? Well, you actually did well, light I, a fucking have... car on fire recently. <laughs> yeah. So. Well, I, 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 did, I, did, I did think the sort of the fun thing about it, too, was that you have John Seal, who is, you know, Academy Award winning cinematographer, uh, has, um, you know, has, uh, has shot like the Engl- was the cinematographer, the English patient and Mad Max Fury Road, very sort of you know, uh, uh, very big kind of anointed genius of cinematography who's just sitting there going like, yeah, I was shooting second unit on this film. And like, you know, they, <laughs> they, they and you know, people be like, uh, people get like hit by the car and then they just, they go be like, oh, you're all right, mate. Here's a VB. Just get out of the way quicker next time. Right. Yeah. No, it's kind of nice. I mean, and it's I, like, I, I think the thing that is the, that is best about this film. And I think everyone should see this film. If, if you're interested in this, if you haven't seen it, see it again, if you have, but it's uh, it's like you said. You get to experience all of these films without, in a way that is really kind of fun, accessible, and it's a flyby. But at the same time, you kind of feel like you've seen them. Like, okay, I have not seen Razorback, but I feel like I've seen Razorback. You know, you have not seen Razorback. I I I I like Razorback a lot. So I'm just saying. You, I we I came close to actually doing Razorback as part. I thought of you the, were gonna uh, as. A, I it was it was in there it was in there I came close to it but that was the funny thing is I really wanted to I mean that's the thing too we are talking about a portion of Australian cinema I mean there's a lot to Australian cinema so it's kind of like you know I had three films to pick and I kind of ended up going with a much more modern horror film in it and part of it was that it was just kind of it was hard to like try. I was trying to get a variety of films within my choices, you know. So I I picked uh, you know a historical drama, a comedy, and a horror film. And by that point, you know it's 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 you know I'm already doing one uh, a drama from like 1980. It it felt really hard to sort of like suddenly turn around and go like I'm going to put another 70s film or 80s film in there. So it's like you're trying to trying to like get a like a, a variety of things going, which was one of the reasons why I liked the idea of us being able to talk about the film here but so austin out of curiosity 
I mean, obviously, I know you've seen Wake and Fright, which is, as we discussed when we talked about Wake and Fright on the podcast, Wake and Fright is kind of, even though it's kind of not really part of this, it is kind of one of the things that essentially kicks off this movement um, because it's such a big, important film within, you know, kind of Australian cinema. It's kind of one of the, it's kind of the beginning of the the sort of the, the the Australian new wave. Right. You know, so things like Wake and Fright, Walkabout, those are the kind of the two the big ones that kind of kick off the more serious side of things. And then Stork is the one that's kind of the beginning of this sort of commercial period of looking into of of, of these kind of sort of low budget exploitation mm. movies. So out of curiosity, how many of these films had you seen? Oh shoot, okay, so uh I'd say f- five. Five. Yeah. Out so of like what a hundred? No, out of like fifty. Um, uh, yeah, I think it's around fifty. I've seen. Well, I, I actually wrote it down. I got. I've seen fourteen. I've seen. I uh, there was about nine that I put aside as I want to watch those. They were nearly all the horror. Well, because films. yeah, because um, there are some of fil- some of the films that are more recent films that they talk about as being like inspired by these other precursors. Well, I'd I'd seen and those. I've seen those. I'd yeah, seen like those Wolf films. Creek and Saw. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, those don't count, uh, I guess. So, shit, maybe like no. only three then. <laughs> and then out of the ones I hadn't seen, I hadn't seen 20. I, I, there's, there's 24 that I hadn't seen, and I have to say I'm not that interested in seeing. Have you seen BMX you Bandits? Know, it's like a, I have seen BMX Bandits. Because okay. <laughs> um, I, I had a thing, too, of I quite liked um, Brian Trenchard Smith. So I actually went and watched a bunch of his films. So I watched, I've seen Dead End, Dead End Drive-In. Um, I've seen BMX Bandits and I've seen Turkey Shoot. Because uh, Turkey Shoot especially is a part of the film where you're like, this is so nuts, I just want to see what this film looks like. Okay. Uh, right. And it is like, and it's 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 really fast because it is kind of like, it did kind of become a, a real sort of cult phenomenon after it. And it is just like, it is like, it ins- it's just like an insanely crazy movie. Um, and again, and that was kind of part of it is like the whole idea with this a lot of times was, you know, you're competing with the American market. So what you've got to do is you've got to find ways of kind of pushing the wow factor in terms of like, you're not going to be able to match them in terms of budget. So you've got to, you've got to match them in terms of where you're willing to go with the content. So, I mean, the interesting thing is basically with Turkey Shoot is that the, uh, about halfway through the movie, right before the movie started, about half the budget just suddenly disappeared and there's conflicting reports on why that happened and who was responsible for it. Um, but, um, but yeah, but it's the essentially Brian Trenchard Smith's like, uh, his whole kind of solution to that was rather than try and, uh, rather than try and match what they were originally going to do, just make it into a really gory kind of like splatter film. Um, and so it does have these very weird, total elements to it and it is kind of all over the place and it's it oftentimes in kind of bad taste but that's kind of also a little bit what you go to these movies for you kind of want to see where the film is willing to go and i think it's something that we've kind of lost a lot with kind of like because you don't have that kind of same thing of exploitation movies anymore so you don't really have that sense of i'm gonna go watch something super fucked up and just sort of see where they're willing to go with it Right. Yeah, I've but, by I have the no way, fucking clue. 
By the way, it's really funny too when when they're interviewing Steve Rails back in it, and Steve Rail ba- Rails back is like getting pissed pissed off at the producers for losing the money, and they keep sort of going like, and I can't remember who it is. I think it might be I think it might be Tony Ganey, who I have to say comes off very oily through the entire film. He kind of who's kind of this very famed producer um, of these films. Um, he. Uh, the, the, the bit where he kind of goes like, well, I don't think Steve was in any kind of uh, state of mind. And then you're kind of like, you cut back to Steve Railsback and he's so clearly pissed while doing the interview that like he's still clearly drunk that you're just kind of like, yeah, he's, I, I can definitely believe that he probably wasn't in a good state of mind during that filming process. <laughs> I mean, I feel like this whole thing would have been a, a very interesting time period to be a part of. Because, I mean, they weren't making a lot of money, were they? I mean, I think it's kind of one of those things because I think one of the interesting things about the modern era is that we've we're so fucked up in terms of how we think about a successful movie now That's because true. we've become so into this blockbuster mindset where it's like you spend uh, you know two hundred three hundred million dollars on a film and you make a billion. That's that's the right. that's the gauge for success now. Whereas, like, you know, I mean, the funny thing is I was reading about this, and actually, there's never been... I'm pretty sure there's not a single movie in the Halloween franchise that has grossed over $100 million. But, like, the original Halloween was made for, like, you know, under a million, and I think it made something like... I can't remember, like, $20, $30 million or something like that. And that was considered, like, a huge success. Right. So it's kind of like... It, it's a little bit how you quantify a lot of this, because... In terms of like, n- none of these films were making like a hundred million at the box office. But compared to the the, the budgets they were putting into it, because none of these films were being made for over a million. So I mean, like you know, if they made like six million, that's a great fucking profit for these movies. So you know, it's it you know again, it, it, it's all relative to a certain extent. And certainly, one of the things that they tried to do a lot with them is they tried to find ways to sell them in America. So the original Mad Max, um, it was when it was released in America, it was released with American voices dubbing over the Australian oh, that's voices. That's right. They do that with Scottish films. And Didn't then, they do the subtitles with uh train spotting? They did put subtitles on train spotting. Yeah. Um but I mean with um but with the Australian films there was also a thing where they would they would hire American actors and then try and veer away from people realizing they were Australian. Like they would like all the supporting characters would kind of speak in pseudo American accents and it was you know, they there was an attempt to kind of make these films marketable in Australia, which was also something that rubbed people up the wrong way. So especially, too, when you have, say, something like Road Games, where you have Stacey Keach and Jamie Lee Curtis as the leads in it, that was something where, like, the Australian the uh, Australian actors' um, equity was really fucking pissed off about it. Um, and, you know, and there was a kind of fe- there was a kind of resentment to the idea that they were taking Australian money and making films that they were deli- deliberately trying to take away overtly Australian elements in order to make it more palatable to wider audiences. Hmm. Yeah, but it's really, really fascinating, too, when they start talking about, say, a movie like Long Weekend, where they say, like, how the film wasn't that successful in Australia because the whole notion of the film... Because I brought up Long Weekend when we were talking about... Um, when we were talking about uh, Antichrist because I think it's a better movie than Antichrist. <laughs> but um, it's a... It's, but it's, it's a film that's, again, it's about this notion of this couple going into um, uh, nature and the wilderness and the idea of the wilderness being this uh, 
uh, dark force that's that's uh, that, that's that's striking back at them, and the more horrible and cruel they are, the more it's reflected in the way nature reacts to them. And it's a really fascinating, weird, little creepy movie. But it didn't work for Australian audiences because Australian audiences were like, well, you know, it's a uh, fucking, you know, it's it, it's just. That's my backyard. It doesn't look like some kind of weird, creepy, foreboding place. It just looks like what I'm used to. That's the that's the wilderness that I'm used to. Yeah, I guess, except, I mean, if you're from fucking Sydney or Melbourne or something like that, the Northern Territories are still pretty wild. No? I mean, you know, but then again, it's Australia. They don't, they don't, they're not scared of anything. Yeah, that's true. They're just badasses. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess that's like... I don't know. I'm trying to think. Like in in America, we if you're from New York, you still have uh, a sense. You could still have a sense of trepidation about going down into like the bayou, like the swamps of the bayou, right? Like that's still mm. kind of there's something creepy and alluring about that, or or vice versa. Fuck if you're from you know the country going to the big city. So I mean, I get that. But well, fuck. We talked about we talked about deliverance. I mean, deliverance is like one where clearly it's like city boys go into the wilderness, get fucked up. <laughs> right. Exactly. Literally. Yeah. Um. But um. But okay. So what was what kind of like? Were there any sort of specific movies that really kind of stuck out to you in this? Was there anything that really intrigued you? Well, I mean, so I know we mentioned it earlier, and the reason I mentioned it is because it really does intrigue me. I actually really do want to see it. I was kind of being tongue-in-cheek a little bit, but I really want to see Razorback. Um, because I remember you told me that you said it doesn't seem like the kind of film that you would love, but that there's something kind of batshit crazy and enjoyable about it. So I really want to see Razorback. I really want to see Alvin Purple. Um, just because it's kind of... Supr- Is that because there's a lot of boobs in it? Well, I mean, whatever, man. I mean, don't reduce me to my baser instincts, but maybe. Um... But no, it just seems like one of those weird films. And then I want to see the, um, the what is it, The Man from Hong Kong? Man from Hong Kong, yeah. I want to watch The Man from Hong Kong. I want to see The Man from Hong Kong, too. And then, I mean, those are the ones that really kind of stand out. Like, yeah, Long Weekend sounds good. Um, I, I guess I Turkey think you Shoot. Dig the, I think you would dig Long Weekend, definitely. I feel like I would streets. actually like Long Weekend, whereas I feel like Razorback, yeah. I would just, it would be fun if I were at a B-movie night with a group of friends. Yeah. Um, but it's... No, anyway, go ahead. But, I mean, I, I think I think the thing that's quite interesting, too, is how this film relates a lot to Australian culture of the time. So, for instance, like, when it's talking about the... Ocker films and especially with the Ocker films and like the the kind of like the sex comedy. Yeah, that's why I want to see. It Alvin talks Purple. a lot about. It talks a lot about kind of like what's going on within the culture of the time. Right. So you have, um, you know, it name checks Jermaine Greer. It talks about the notion of kind of like um, women's liberation movement at the time. And so it was like this uh, this thing of people. There was this this kind of idea of this kind of freeing of sexuality in a lot of ways, and so like these films were kind of capitalizing on that as a kind of interest point. And so it also has. I mean, it talks about a couple of films like Australia After Dark, um, you know, where it's like the the whole idea was really about you know sort of like showing off this the sort of the sort of the more 
sexually liberated world. And of course, it's it's interesting because at the same time that's coming uh, in the United States, you have that kind of reflected in how you have a movie like Deep Throat. We have the, the idea was that it was like this mainstream porn film where like, you know, couples would freely say they were going to Deep Throat to, 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 to sort of see it, you know, and, um, you know, you had famous people like sort of like uh, going to the cinema to see it. And it was kind of so it, it's interesting how it's it's kind of reflecting the Australian culture is very reflective of also what's going on in America. And so this kind of idea of these these sex comedies being this reflection of the sort of the freeing idea of like the the, the burgeoning um almost like a kind of reaction to the women's liberation movement is interesting, but I think actually one of the things that's also very interesting that it brings up is the idea that this was still a world that was largely controlled by men and where... Mm. There was still a kind of it, it was interesting to see how a lot of the actresses who were talking about it were kind of how what their reactions were to some of this, because certainly some of them kind of still had a oh, that was a that was a fun thing I did when I was younger. And then some sort of said, you know, what I thought it was liberating at the time, but now I really just see that it was exploitation. Mm. And it's it's because I feel like we kind of live in a post sex comedy world. Like, I feel like we had a kind of spate of these in the late 90s, early 2000s, you know, as a sort of post American. American Pie sort of like uh, blip, but I kind of feel like again we, we talked about this with uh, the girl next door. Is they kind of really went out of fashion, and it's kind of interesting to sort of say like where do we actually feel these sit culturally in terms of like uh, in terms of as movies and and, and what they're doing. Hmm. Yeah. I, what was that movie that? Because I actually ended up seeing it uh, where the guy's dick gets cut off and it's with the group of friends. Oh, uh, the, the package. package. The package. That was one of the things we talked about when when you talked about the package. I actually ended up seeing it uh, like a week after or something like that, and um, it like that that you can't make the American Pie kind of movies anymore, and you can't make uh, as you go back further and further. There are certain films that we just, you know, we 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 are evolving. We're growing. We're becoming more sensitive to cultural issues and to voices that have been marginalized or that have been pushed to the periphery previously. And so that's kind of the tendency of cinema to do that. However, there is something interesting when we go back and watch films like this that it's not like it's a cultural artifact, but I do think that there is something that we can glean. And it's not just because I want to see some boobs. I mean, it's not hard. All I have to do is fucking go on the internet. I can see boobs anytime I want, right? It's fucking 2018. So the allure of boobs is not as exciting as it was when Deep Throat was out in the movie theaters, for example. But there is something interesting to kind of gain a little bit of appreciation for the time. Kind of like I want to go back and watch an old Burt Reynolds film and be like, oh, I want to see what type of masculinity masculinity it was that you know subsequent generations were mocking with his uh, based on him. So, I mean, there is something that, as a cultural artifact, I guess we could say that is interesting about these exploitation films. Would you call them the Ocker well, films? And I think. The Ocker films. Well, the Ocker films definitely are kind of like what the the sort of the the sex comedies are generally thought okay. of as. I mean, I mean the, the the sort of the really famous one is obviously uh, the Adventures of Barry McKenzie, which um, I have seen and was ninety minutes of my life I will never get back. Is it bad? Um, it was a miserable experience, and I fucking hated every moment oh, of why? it. Um, so, co- co- consequently, I have never watched Barry McKenzie holds his own. Um, I. <sighs> It's a kind of, I mean, again, I, I get what the film is talking about in the sense that part of what these films important place culturally in Australia at the time was to, to suggest that 
you could make a film about specifically Australian culture that was a sort of joke and aimed at Australian audiences and make a profit and be successful. It's again why Stork is seen as a kind of significant, you know, film within that 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 realm. But my problem with The Adventures of Barry McKenzie is just that I just don't find it funny as a film. I find mm. it tedious and dull and Again, I think a lot of its comedy feels very old. It hasn't aged well. And I mean, and I think the, I think the, um, the documentary kind of makes a point of this and it sort of shows some of that, some of the stuff that really hasn't aged very well. And I, and I think a lot of the things that were quite transgressive at the time, like, you know, him, you know, vomiting on the guy's head or all the shit on the pavement when they're showing London. I mean, I think a lot of that just feels very kind of lame. And I, and I think, you know, again, part of it is interesting to contextualize within, you know, the, the realm of someone like Barry Humphreys, who has a kind of, again, you know, he has a kind of disdain for this type of person. Mm. So, I mean, but I mean, to a certain extent, maybe what I'm viewing with the Ocker comedy with, with Barry McKenzie is a little bit of your reaction to say, uh, to say um, idiocracy, which just mm. I find I find the film itself kind of gross, not in the sense that I think like these people need to necessarily be defended in any kind of a way. It's just more I just think that it marvels and revels in just like just really obnoxious and terrible people. Mm. And and I just get tired of it. But I mean, again, they say in the film, you know, there's always people who are going to misunderstand satire. So there you go. But I, I just found the whole film a very unpleasant watch and did not enjoy it at all. And I sound exactly like the two film critics that they have uh, in the um, in the film. Because you have Bob Ellis and Philip Adams, who are two of the most miserable looking men in the world, just sitting there, just just drolly being pissy about every single film that's brought up. Hmm. Um. But yeah, no, I, I wouldn't say I, I'm not. I'm, yeah, The Adventures of Barry McKenzie is not a film I would ever recommend anybody see unless you're just wanting some kind of context of the of, of the time period. But no, I mean, I, I think it's also interesting because one of the things that they say, too, is that, um, you know, one of the actresses says there's pretty much not a single actress of my generation that wasn't uh, tits and ass at some point on a Alvin Purple film, because <laughs> I think they just churn these out. Um, yeah. How many I mean, are there? Like, so you say. And uh, I I don't even know. There's but, Alvin um, Purple. Alvin Purple rides again. What else? Oh God, I don't see any. Well, there was these. What's well, a little bit? I think like the way you compare them is say to like the Carry On films in the UK, or um, there was a there was this series of films in the UK that was like Confessions of a Window Washer. And they were like Confessions, of, and it was always like it's the same guy, but it was always like Confessions of something else. Like his job would change for each movie, and it was like it was always like it was almost like kind of goofy. Because of course the Brits can't really do sex in a sort of straightforward erotic way. It has to be in some way undercut by humor. Um, so it was always like some goofy guy. It's very much the same sort of set up as Alvin Purple, where it's just all these women, he just ends up getting it off with all of these women, but always seems to do it by kind of like purely by accident. Hmm. And usually it's involved in some kind of job that he's doing at that point in time. So, hmm. um, but I mean, it's, it's that weird thing of like, these are not films I grew up with. I don't have any nostalgia for them. So when I look at them, 
I can only look at them in so much as I think they're a good movie or not. And so something like Barry McKenzie, I just find tedious to watch. See, I wonder if there isn't um, like some sort of retroactive imposed nostalgia that you have for these films, though. Because when you watch them, it does remind you of a maybe not a past culturally that you're familiar with, but a cinematic past that you find valuable. Does that make sense? I think I, su- I suppose yes. But it's interesting because I, if you look at the films that I've watched and you look at the films that I put down as ones I would like to watch, almost none of the, the, the only one I've seen is The Adventures of Barry McKenzie. Um, and after that, there's none that I've put in the want to see pile. Everything else, all the other sort of sex comedies are purely in the not seen pile. So, you know, something doesn't, tickle my fancy about those films mm. particularly so i, I and i i don't I, you know again it's i think it's not necessarily a genre i'm that fascinated by whereas i think like the thing is for me is that because i'm someone who really likes horror i'm kind of again intrigued by a lot of even the trashier or stupid sort of looking horror films because i'm kind of just intrigued by what they're what they're doing there um so it's like so you know the, the things that i have in my to watch are things like Patrick or Snapshot or Thirst, you know, or, or Next of Kin looked really fascinating to me. I'm really sort of okay. interested in that so one. So l- let me ask you, like, what is it about these horror films that fascinates you so much? I mean, they they aren't really well made. They The acting is going to be terrible. It's going to be kind of silly and over the top. So what is it that you're going to enjoy about them, you think? I mean, again, there's an... Interesting. So, so if I look at Turkey Shoot, which is a film that I found quite entertaining to watch, I don't know. I think there was um, there's an entertainment in the in a sort of detached way, almost like the the grossness of it is kind of what's almost fascinating about it. You don't and you you kind of detach yourself from any kind of like moral objections to any of it because you're just kind of I'm, again. I feel like I'm just watching some low-budget schlock thing that doesn't really have a worldview, is just kind of trying to create thrills and, you know, whatnot. And you could say that that's problematic. I'm not really sure I give a shit. But, um, <laughs> but I mean, it's, it's like Brian Trenchard Smith even says in the film, he's kind of like, you know, I, you know, sure, it's far from anything that's, you know, there to, uh, you know, investigate the human condition or anything like that. But, you know, is that really what the kids want? Mm-hmm. And, I, and I suppose, like, that's that's it. The, the point of these, like, people like, uh, you know, Brian Trenchard Smith and people like, um, you know, uh, uh, like uh, um, Richard Franklin, who made Patrick and Road Games, they were kind of they were trying to make entertainment and well, that, that's what you know, Brian Trenchard again, Smith like says about action at one point, right? He's like, it's, if you're in China or yeah. if you're in Australia, it doesn't matter. An action film is appealing. Yeah, and that was kind of so he kind of the man. His whole inspiration for the man from Hong Kong is like, if you're doing kung fu movies on top of like a building, why not do it on top of uh, Uluru? You know, mm. it's like what's 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 stopping you from doing that? I mean, obviously you can't do that anymore because now you're not allowed to climb up Uluru. So, but you know, in that in that time you could. Hmm. Um, but um, but no, and I, I think there is, to me, just something really fascinating in this notion of people going for this thing of saying, like, I'm, I'm trying to create a wow moment or a wow factor. And so when I'm talking, when you talk about someone like Gaspar Noe, and I'm saying, like, Gaspar Noe 
creates films that are about the visceral experience of film. It's not about, say... Because the, the characters in most Gaspar Noe films aren't that well-drawn or interesting. It's about the visceral experience of seeing a Gaspar Noe film. So even like Enter the Void, it's a, really about the visceral experience of it. Um, and so, I mean, again, in many ways, you're watching Climax. It's supposed to feel like you're in a drug trip, essentially. Mm. Um, where And I think a lot of these exploitation films are about the visceral experience of them. And I find, I find that fascinating. And I think it's why I'm less interested in the comedies because the comedies are comedy doesn't always age the best. And especially things that are kind of made cheap and kind of for kind of cheap laughs often don't age the best, but I think shock can still kind of, you know, something that was shocking in 1980 can still be shocking today. You know, you know, especially in a time period where I feel we've become, much more, I, I mean, I, I feel like in the last, especially like the last like five years, but I mean, I think it's been on a trend for a while is, is that we've become much more cagey about what we put into film. There's very few, I don't think there's a lot of shocking films that come out anymore. Mm. Um, and maybe that's also culturally. You mean mainstream shock, films or just especially something general? like Game of Thrones, you know, you have things that Mainstream films. Okay. Mainstream films, because I still don't, I don't think there's, there's a big exploitation market, because even when I watch these kind of straight-to-Netflix horror films, they're just bad a lot of the time. They're not actually, they don't, they're not going for something, like, crazy conceptually. And that's, again, like, part of the whole thing with these films was that they were essentially trying to give you some kind of, like, crazy moment. And, and, and Tarantino talks about that. Tarantino talks about how, like, there was that point when you were watching an exploitation movie where something would happen and it would happen every so often where something would happen in that movie and you just suddenly go, what the fuck am I watching right now? <laughs> and that's kind of the wow factor of it. So again, it's like um, when uh, I got a... I remember getting like... Uh, um, and when I was uh, in my early 20s, they put out this thing called The Box of the Band, which was, um, the, which was a collection of video nasties. And so, you know, I, you know, you'd watch things like, you know, Nightmares in a Damaged Brain or Last House on the Left. And you kind of like you wanted to see you wanted to see where the film was going to go and what it was going to take you to and, you know, how far you could how far you could go. And that part of that visceral thrill was the excite. That was part of the excitement of it. And, you know, and I suppose like if you're not interested in that, that's kind of a hard thing to stress to people. Why? That's such a intoxicating thing. Mm. But, you know. I think part of it, too, is I come from a place where I'm like, I'm aware all of this is fake. I'm aware all of this is just makeup and effects. So it's like there's there's a point to me where I'm kind of like I'm just kind of fascinated with what they're trying to pull off. Right. I mean, do you have and that again, same again, leniency, Especially something like Razorback. Especially with something like Razorback. Razorback is like a stylish as fuck movie. Like it is a really like high end looking like B movie. So it's like again, that's a that's a movie that's just fun to watch. Right. So do you have that same disposition towards like schlocky American horror films too? Because I'm wondering, I'm yeah, wondering if the there's something film. about th- that you know it's Australian, that you know it's a part of this. Uh, this kind of subculture of of osploitation films that have been maybe disregarded or I'm wondering if like I'm wondering how much maybe are you 
are you excited about the fact that you are connected to this entire horizontal genre? You know, and that that makes I, it interesting. I suppose, I, you know, or like, or a, maybe, or, or real quick, or is there something like really intrinsically unique about these films that makes them better than like schlocky, shitty '70s exploitation films in America? Well, it's interesting because I do think I do think one of the interesting things sometimes is really being able to see uh, the culture and the setting reflected through the film. So okay, yeah. I think certainly there's an interesting element to which obviously I have a lot of affection for Australia. So there is an interesting element to having it set in Australia, which certainly I find very exciting as part of what I'm watching. Gotcha. Um, so uh, so you know the iconography of the outback and. You know, it's, 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 again, it's something that I enjoy a lot. And also, again, there's something about the way that these sort of Australian biker gangs in like these action movies are, which feels very intrinsically Australian. And of course, well, I think one of the things that always draws me to Australia is that Australia is kind of very much a hybrid of, of Britain and America. You know, Mm -hmm. um, it has a lot of the same iconographic elements of America in the sense that it's, it's a lot about sort of frontier as well as like a lot of the cultural elements. It's very based around cars. I mean, it's one of the things Tarantino says, one of the reasons that these films were successful was because Australia had drive-ins much like America. And when the home video market came in, it kind of killed off the drive-in. It was one of the reasons that these films started failing, you know, is because they didn't have a clear place to sort of be shown and distributed in a clear market to be going towards so it's sort of like so again it's kind of interesting how i think that i'm very taken by how australia as a culture is kind of feels a little bit like me in the sense that it's a hybrid of nations but i think also i'm just very intrigued by how that culture is represented on film and also mm. there's a nostalgia for because i went to australia you right. know it was uh, for a year of my life and it was a very big deal for me and it was so you know being able to see the country in film is always very exciting to me so it's even like why i said you know why one of the reasons i chose priscilla queen of the desert um as a, a film that we're going to do in the future as part of the verses, because I, I love the fact that you can, I've been to all the places that you see in Priscilla queen of the desert. You right. Know, it's, it's like, it's like a fun kind of nostalgia trip for me in a lot of ways. So, I mean, there's a, you're right. There's certainly a deep affection for it, but I do think that there are some intrinsically Australian things that come out in these, in these exploitation movies that feel very unique to the movement that they're doing. Mm. No, that makes sense. That makes sense. I mean, I guess I'm just not as exposed to the films um, as I would like to be. So for me, it's kind of I'm, – I'm more just curious as to if there's something – like, you know, I mean obviously because even Tarantino, there's something intrinsic about this genre of film that is unique that that people are drawn to. And uh, I'm kind of just curious as to what it is. I mean, I saw Wake and Fright, and I can say that Wake and Fright is not like any other film I've ever seen. And it's not like I'm trying to be hyperbolic there, and it's like it's the greatest film I've ever seen. It's a fucking fantastic film. But more than that, it's just something – there's something really unique about how it's filmed, about the the mise-en-scene. Um, and maybe it's just because Australia itself has a lot of mythology surrounding it and that that there is a wildness about Australia as such. Like, we think of it as the place with wild animals. It's big sharks. It's Great Barrier Reefs. It's the outback. It's beautiful people. It's it's this mythical kind of land, at least in the the, the sort of uh, imagined 
consciousness of Americans and maybe other people around the world. I mean, fuck, you know this as living in the UK. How many fucking Brits and uh and uh, and Irish people come down here because Australia's supposed to be like the promised land, you know? And they come down here and they get sun and they never want to go back home, <laughs> you know? So well, here's here's the interesting thing about. Australia, too, like culturally within the, the, the film realm, is that there is this constant push and pull between the notion of civilization and non-civilization and, and, and wilderness mm. and and this idea of this sort of settling of civilization within the sort of the urban city environment and um, and what the wilderness represents. Now, the wilderness can represent two very different things. The wilderness can represent this kind of, uh, you know, but it, it's interesting how often it changes because... There's this notion, this is a very interesting theme that we'll get into in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, which is this idea of um, the city being this kind of place that's almost this kind of refuge from the sort of like uh, the, the, the harsh realities of the wilderness and the outback and all this. And then you but you also get this idea and say something like walkabout where the idea is that the urban environment is the oppressive place and that actually it's, it's out in the in, in the nothing is where you 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 discover yourself. So it's. It's interesting that Australia, it throughout it, is always trying to reckon with this idea of the urban environment and the and 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 the wilderness, and that's a constant theme, mm. and that's something that again really has to come from Australian culture, and it's a theme that exists in American cinema certainly, but it can't exist in say somewhere. It's much harder for it to exist in a place like Britain, where everything's much more built up, and even Europe in general, it's a much more difficult theme to pull off. Mm. You know, you need somewhere that has this. Um, this this sense of being able to get lost, and one of the things that's so fascinating about Wake and Fright is it presents this this sort of this culture and this world, this bubble of just um, intense violence and weirdness that would seem so alien to anyone who hasn't been part of that culture. And that's one of the things that, again, is it's interesting because it's directed by a Canadian who's coming in and viewing things that to the people who are there seem normal, but to an outsider seems so exotic and strange and peculiar that it 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 has so much more resonance. Mm. And I think that's it. I think there's a there's a strange exoticism to Australia that as an outsider you can you can you can see but to an Australian wouldn't necessarily sort of like they wouldn't necessarily realize it and also Australia is a very isolated country in many ways I mean you meet a lot of Australians they have a very small worldview because part of the appeal of Australia in many ways was people going away to get away from things right yeah it's interesting I mean I've been here for six months now and when I first got here you know, the first couple weeks or whatever, it's like, ah, new place, it's exciting, whatever. Then I kind of settled in, I was like, oh, fuck, this place is super similar to Los Angeles or just to Southern California, let's say, LA and Orange County. I was like, I don't know if I'm going to love it because it's so similar. And then as time has gone on, I've actually started to become more attuned to those elements of the wilderness or those elements of the beyond or those elements of the exoticism that you mentioned. And now it's kind of rekindled again that uh, that that exploratory curiosity that I had when I first got here and that I was hoping I would experience with my time here. Because it is. I mean, yes, it's similar to Los Angeles in that there's beaches, but the beaches here have this amazing dramatic coastline and these cliffs and things like that that you don't find in Southern California. Southern California is just kind of beaches and then ocean, and they're beautiful, but you have a little bit more of like a dramatic scenery here. There is something about... The actual, I, I think, experience of Australia that still 
it, it has a lot to give. Now, I mean, obviously, if I lived here for 20 years or something like that, or if I was just born into this, then it would be commonplace. But um, it still has a lot to give. It still has a lot that is excessive that I feel like I'm starting to scratch the surface of. And it's now starting to really excite me. You know, like I'm going on this... Every Sunday is like my exploration day and I'm exploring and, you know, hopefully you're going to come out here and maybe we can go to the, uh, maybe we can go to the Outback together or something like that, you know? So there are these things and when we do that, it's going to be like, in my mind, I'm like, fuck, this is like Wake and Fright, <laughs> you know? Um, I'm, well, I'm going to be thinking about... The best about... thing I can, dis- well, we can actually go to, we can actually go to Broken Hill, which is the town that Wake and Fright was based off of. Because um, it's actually, you can go, you can take a train directly there from Sydney. Mm. Um, but... I mean, here's the thing. Um, Here's the weird thing, too. Like, the best way I can describe the unique oddness of Australia is um, I went on the Indian Pacific, which is a train that takes you directly across the Nullarbor Plain, which is this just giant, long, flat plain of just straight. And they have this, this long, flat plain of straight track. And the thing with, say, the American wilderness is that it is kind of periodically settled. I mean, there's obviously a lot of, like, there's a lot of, like, open desert, open space. But, like, generally, across the United States, you have towns and stuff dotted around. Australia has a vast nothingness in the middle of it where almost nothing lives and nothing exists, you know? <laughs> right. And so you, you're you going along the Indian Pacific, on the, on the, um, along the Nullarbor Plain on the Indian Pacific, and you stop at this town called Cook. And Cook is kind of a dead town. It's kind of a ghost town. And it's they do that to like re, to like water the tanks or whatever. And there's like a couple of people who live there who basically operate a gift shop. And you get you get off the train and you walk to the edge of town. And the town exists as like three or four houses. And you look out and you realize that if you started walking and just kept walking, you would die long before you reached anything that even vaguely resembled civilization. Mm. That you would just be fucked. That you are in this place where your only connection to any kind of life is this long, straight track with a train on it. And mm. it's things like that that are the surreal elements to Australia that I don't even think exist in the United States. Like when I was fruit picking, I remember this point where like I was going back to Perth and it just had this little platform that was like you could put about maybe four people could have stood on. And you just had this long straight track just going out into the middle of nowhere and then you saw on this little horizon this little train coming over the the edge it would come all the way for and then the guy would just put down this little plank and you walked across the plank onto the train Mm. and it's just like that those those weird moments that you're kind of like this resembles something close to a normal thing that i know but it feels weirdly off and that's that's what's really bad and again that's what i think wake and fright really captures is that just that sort of the oddness of when you're out in like the nothingness mm. of Australia. Um, yeah. and it's, it's a, and, and I, and I think that's where, especially it's why a lot of the road movies really work in Australia. Why a lot of the horror movies work is because that kind of oppressive notion of this kind of weird other world are just really fascinating. Hmm. Yeah. 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 I mean, I, I again, like I said, man, this makes me kind of really excited. I mean, I feel like this was the perfect primer to get us into our, uh, our Australian cinema off or whatever we're going to call it because do you have an outbacky kind of film because I've got the proposition which kind of is westerny outbacky I guess 
Uh, Priscilla, Queen of the Desert is an Outback film, and I think it's a really interesting one because it's really about dealing with the idea of the cultural revolutions in Australia um, coming up against the more... Uh, conservative ideas of the outback mm. because it's about you know it's about drag queens traveling to um, Alice Springs, which is of course the town adjacent to Uluru and kind of the middle of the country, and then going through Broken Hill and a lot of these kind of like really kind of like small outback worlds and how they how the the the, the drag queens butting up against these these sort of these small towns and small worlds kind of like really work. It's 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 a really interesting one because again it's the idea of urban Australia um, reckoning with um, rural Australia. Mm. Um, so, yeah, no, definitely. It's uh, so I would classify that as an outback film. Um, actually, funnily enough, Gallipoli has a big section in the first half of it that deals with the outback. Um, and then um, and then, yeah, Beloved Ones has nothing to do with the outback at all. Mm. Well, I think and Simpson and Delilah, I guess, maybe has something to do with a little bit of uh, at least. Certainly that's I think. It's a different type of thing it's going for than what I'm talking about. Because, yeah. of course, I mean, and it's something to be said is that a large portion of Australian cinema has very much been about dealing with the um, the white population's thing. You know, because there's just not a lot of Aboriginal voices in the film industry, so there's not been a lot of exploration of Aboriginal issues. That's something that's changed a lot in the last... Well, changed a fair amount in the last you know, uh, 10 years. I mean, certainly something like rabbit proof fence, I think was kind of one of the big kickoffs in order, uh, starting a sort of interest in more Aborigine focused stories. Mm. Um, but I mean, after outside of that, Aborigines kind of play more of a supporting role. I mean, except for, I'd say walkabout where you have a very prominent Aborigine character in it, but still is very much there as a, a conduit for, the two white children who are kind of uh, the main characters of the film. Mm. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's a, I mean, it's, it's certainly something to be brought up about uh, Australian cinema. And so it will be interesting looking at Samson Delilah, which is a film that I have actually never seen. So it will be hey. you know, an interesting thing to look at. Nice. So I think we can wrap this up. Is there anything um, out of curiosity? Um, are there any, I, 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 would you like to know the films that I would really like to see out of, uh, that I haven't seen out of on, on, in this documentary? Yeah. Lay it on me. I want to see Patrick because Quentin Tarantino seems so enthusiastic about Patrick. And I liked fair game, which was the director's one of the directors of the films. Uh, I want to see snapshot because I really liked the whole story about how, when they released that in America, they retitled it the day after Halloween as a way of trying to make people trick people into thinking it was a Halloween sequel. Mm. Um, I want to see Thirst purely because of that shot with the girl in the shower where the blood comes down. And I just thought that looked kind of cool. So I'm kind of intrigued mm. by that. Uh, Want to see the survivor? Because actually, that plane sequence at the beginning looks pretty cool. Um, I want to see nightmares purely because I just thought that guy, uh, John, um, uh, what was his name? John, John Lamden, Lamden. Sorry, sorry, John Lamond. He just seemed like such a prick. I'm just fascinated to see what that actually. I don't even remember which that one is. Yeah. Okay. It's one where he was basically, he's like, I'm going to make a slasher film because uh, I really just fancy seeing uh, all these women get uh, killed while uh, while they're fucking, you know, uh. that, he just, he's, he was the one, he was the guy who's interviewed with a stripper in the background. Okay. Um, I want to see Next of Kin because that looks stylish as fuck. And Tarantino said it's amazing. He's like, he's, ba- he's he was like, basically it's got the same tone. He's got the same, it's got the same feel to it as The Shining and I'm not overselling it. 
Um, I want to see Stone because I'm kind of fascinated by just like the that biker film. Again, that was one Tarantino seemed to be really sort of like enthusiastic about. And I want to see The Man from Hong Kong because I quite like Brian Trenchard Smith, and I'm so I'm I'm, I'm intrigued by that one. Mm. Um, so yeah, so those are the uh, those are the ones that I put aside as those are the ones I'm going to actually sort of bother to seek out. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I want to see Man from Hong Kong, and Patrick looks good, and the other ones I kind of am like eh on. Well, interestingly enough, interesting little tip. Do you know that Patrick? was actually remade by the director of this film. <laughs> what was it called in the remake? Was it called Patrick? It was just called Patrick, okay. but Not Quite Hollywood. Yeah, they remade... The guy, director of Not Quite Hollywood, he remade Patrick starring um, uh, Charles Dance and Rachel Griffiths and also um, the woman who is the lead in Your Next. Uh, oh, yeah. I've seen the trailer. The trailer looks fucking terrible, so I'm not really sure I want to watch it. I think I just want to watch the original. But actually, funnily enough, there was a bunch of these films that ended up kind of, I think, off of the back of this and an interest in this. There was a bunch of films that got remade because they also remade Turkey Shoot with um, the lead guy from Prison Break, the one who's not Wentworth Miller, the other one, who his brother, oh, who yeah. is Australian. Um, and it looks fucking awful. It looks terrible. I've, I've not bothered to watch <laughs> it. Um and then um, also, weirdly, the other thing that's quite interesting is that uh, Lee Winnell, who is the co-writer and one of the stars of Saw, who um, is uh, one of the people who's interviewed in this with James Wan, who is, of course, that's one of the interesting things. You have some really big names because James Wan, obviously, director of Saw, also director of, like, uh, The Conjuring, uh Fast, uh, you know, Fast and Furious, the Furious 7, the 7th Fast and Furious movie, and uh, the soon coming out Aquaman. So he's like huge Hollywood director now. Um, but uh, and then, you know, they also interview obviously Tarantino and uh, John Seal and, you know, Fred Schlepsey and a bunch of other kind of like really big sort of like names. They uh, but he's um, but he actually made a film that came out this year called Upgrade, which I talk about in the bonus episode, um, which um, is kind of weirdly almost. It's kind of almost them doing this. It's a Bloomhouse production, but it is a film that is shot in Australia with Australian production. They hired an American lead, and everybody kind of speaks in American accents, but it's all basically an Australian film that's mm. pretending to be an American film. And it's a gory action movie with um, with a, kind of like a, a crazy high concept. And the funny thing is that movie made... That movie cost five, like un, like three to five million, and made a little over ten. And everyone's like, "Oh, well, that was a disappointment." And you're kind of like, "Well, actually, no. Considering the type of film it's aping, that's actually kind of a success." <laughs> uh. So yeah. So anyway, but my point is, it's uh, very interesting because there, there, you still have see touches of this that ex- still exist to this day. And again, it was kind of kicked off a little bit by Wolf Creek in uh, the mid sort of 2000s mm. coming out and sort of that proving that kind of there was still an interest in Australian horror, which is why we are going to watch The Loved Ones as part of it when we will talk about this further. But anyway, I just thought that was interesting. <laughs> Nobody shoots a car with this fetishistic lens the way Aussies do. High-speed car chases on open highways without police permission, without anything. We just shot them. And after the director set himself on fire, I thought, geez, if he's going to do it, I'll have to do it. He what? That thing's getting awful close. This movie rocks. Next week, 
we have our hundredth episode. Yes, we so, do. Uh, Damn. So son. much. So much like uh, last time when we got to fifty. Once again, we are doing something a bit special, which is going to be we are going to talk about two films which were significant in our lives. Last time we did The Searchers and Top Gun. What do you mean last time? A double last bill, time when? And then when we did fifty episodes. Oh yeah. And last time we had a we had last time we hit a milestone. Okay. Um, so. So now that we're on 100, this is why we're going to do a film that's significant to us again. Um, and so, Austin, do you want to reveal what your film is? Man, I, I was going back and forth. I had a list of five, and then I whittled it down to two. It was either going to be A River Runs Through It or Karate Kid. And A River Runs Through It surprised Kier when I told him about my, my options here. But I grew up... Weirdly, actually, now that I think about it, A River Runs Through It makes a lot of sense because I bet you kind of like kind of wish you were, you know, uh, the... No, because the Brad Pitt character's a drunk in it, isn't he? Uh, he's a bit of a troublemaker, let's say. Is I mean, he that's, a tortured, he's a gambler. Because he, he's not a tortured artist. He's not a tortured artist in any kind no, of No, but he is because he's a fisherman, and fishing, fly oh, okay. fishing is an art. Remember, he's like the artist okay. fisherman. So he is, he's kind of... Okay, so that's it. That's it. That's it. You, you, you kind of like, you, you covet the idea of being the Brad Pitt character, the tortured artist. Yeah, absolutely. Probably. And, you know, he's got a gambling issue. He's a party boy. He's not like a drunk, necessarily. He's a gambler. And that's, the, that's what ends up... I don't want to say anything, but that's what ends up uh, being... He's a Ryan Reynolds in Mississippi Grind type. He is, actually. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but River Runs Through It, I grew up in a family of fishermen, fly fishermen. We go fishing all the time. I just got back from a trip to California. Obviously, we talked about that, but part of my trip was fishing in the mountains, went fly fishing for a few days. So, I mean, I fucking love that movie, but I got to go with Karate Kid. But we're not doing that movie. I got to go with Karate (laughs) Kid, man. As much as I love A River Runs Through It, we will do it one of these days, but fucking Karate Kid was one of the three most impactful films. I've probably seen it. If not as much as Top Gun, just second to Top Gun. So it has to be, you know, it's in my top three. It's Top Gun, Karate Kid, and Princess Bride. You know what? And maybe I have seen Karate Kid more than I've seen Top Gun. I really don't know, but it's close. So here's my question, though. Yeah. Are you are you with Johnny Lawrence or are you with uh, Cobra Kai? Like, which one would you have been in high school? Well, Johnny Lawrence is the guy from Cobra Kai, uh, oh, is he the one? Oh, sorry. No, no, no. It's what's the Daniel name? LaRusso. Are you with Johnny Lawrence? Are you with da- Daniel LaRusso? That's it. Sorry. Yeah, no, man. I'm Daniel LaRusso, man, all the way. Like, I, I'm, I'm curious. I could see you totally being part of Cobra Kai. Me? Yeah, I could totally see you being a Cobra Kai <laughs> member. <laughs> no way, dude. I uh, I love me some some Daniel LaRusso. As a matter of fact, I, uh, I, I had a crush on a girl in Encino, and uh, that's where Elizabeth Shue's character lives, and... Daniel LaRusso's like the dude from Jersey, but he lives in Reseda, which if you're uh, in Los Angeles or you know anything about the Los Angeles area, people know what I'm talking about. That's two different sides of the track, and I was from a different side of the track, and I had a thing for a girl uh, that was from Encino and didn't work out because I wasn't a rich Jewish boy, but that's okay. You weren't an Encino man. I wasn't an Encino man. <laughs> um, okay, so uh, I have gone a very different route, which is, you know, as, as Austin, as I'm, I'm sure you're aware, like many, uh, many young men of my generation, I was, a, a an angry white boy in the suburbs who decided that the answer to all my problems and the coolest movie in the world was fight club. <laughs> so it is a, 
is a movie that definitely during a certain part of my life I was obsessed with, and I probably watched it an insane amount of times, and I would definitely say it was my favorite film for a very, very long period of time. I think it was my favorite film up until I was in my early 20s. Um, And the interesting thing is I haven't seen it in about 10 years, so I'm kind of really intrigued. No, not 10 years, probably more like six years, six or seven. Okay. So I'm really interested to see what it's like now, given the fact of, you know, I'm, I'm still someone who's very enamored with David Fincher. I'll be really fascinated to see how it kind of fits with kind of our more modern idea of David Fincher. I'm interested to see how the film, the film ages. Cause of course the, the fight club came out during that kind of 99 cycle of this, this idea of, you know, the dissatisfaction with the commercial world where, like, we have no real problems, so everything is about the emptiness of the soul, mm. um, uh, which I think is a hard thing to pull off now. Like, you know, it's like I always say, like, American Beauty feels like the most aged film now because the idea of a man being dissatisfied with a big house in the suburbs seems really trite and stupid. Mm. Yeah, that'll be interesting. I'm kind of bummed I didn't pick A River Runs Through It now because then we could have, like, just a Brad Pitt week. No, I think it's good though, because I like I like the fact that we did Top Gun and the Searchers, two really, really two films that don't really have anything in common. <laughs> and I'm, I'm, uh, I, I suppose we could have a theme of fragile masculinity, possibly, and, and fighting as our uh, with that uh, with the Karate Kid exactly. and Fight Club. But um, but no, I'm I'm really quite. It's a film that I'm really quite fascinated to discuss because it's a film that I also feel has been a has kind of become a bit culturally derided because. Uh, you know, like me, you know, a lot of young men had Fight Club posters in their room, you know, growing up. And, you know, and I, I think it's it's a film that became such a big sort of cultural artifact that they Bro, became the big you didn't have a Fight Club poster. You had a Brad Pitt poster with his shirt off looking all shredded and ripped. And be honest, you Actually, smacked no, the ham to it a the... couple of times. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to you watching a river runs through it, looking at him, look sad and like masturbating to that. You're like, oh, he's got so much, so many deep emotions. I just wanted him to but hold no, my um, hand. I didn't want to fuck him. Okay. Actually, the thing, the thing with the thing, the poster I had was I had the classic poster with the soap and then the two little shots of like Brad Pitt and Edward Norton. And Brad Pitt was fully clothed in that. Oh, okay. But yeah, but yeah, no, I'm, I'm sorry to disappoint oh, well. Austin. But you know, you know, we'll, we'll, we could talk about we could talk about Brad Pitt's abs next week. I will do that because that was like my inspiration for working out when I was in my twenties. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so in the meantime, uh, Jordan, we will definitely be back next week. This, yes. We're not going to go on another impromptu hiatus. So. Um, uh, join us next week. Um, in the meantime, uh, check us out on Twitter at I Dig This Movie. Uh, go to our website, idigthismovie.com, which has all our back episodes. Also, uh, check us out on iTunes. Please subscribe, um, reviews, all that sort of stuff. Um, and Austin, anything? Oh, also, if you want to see my work, go to kirsiewood.com. Austin? Yeah, you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. Oh, and motherfuckers, I just got a book contract today. Oh, wow. Yeah. Holla, because I'm a badass philosopher. Okay. All right. All right. Is is what's 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 the book going to be about? How much you uh you really you you're really obsessed with men going and living? Are you going to go live in the wilderness and like write this book? <laughs> yes. Yes, I will. You just sit underneath a tree and ponder and sort of like write things down on note paper. And then, you know, you're going to come back to the publisher and be like, here's a big, like, giant box of just loose leaf thoughts. That's right. That into Good luck. Book. Good luck working through that shit.
All right. See you next week. Peace.